Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's start with Peter Kent, former host of Global Television's first national newscast, former CBC News anchor, NBC News senior European correspondent. Those were pretty good gigs, Peter. They were. It was a great adventure. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, good to talk to you, uh, Roy. We have a bit of an echo here. I know we do. It happens periodically, and we will do what we can to, to work with it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, we'll, we'll get through it. Let me start then with, with this. You were a news anchor for many years. Um, when it comes to women news anchors, when you were anchoring at uh, Global and at... Uh, CBC and working at NBC, it was unusual for a woman to have an anchor position, was it not? Uh, it it was. I mean, we're going back into the uh, into the middle of the last century, and and it certainly was then. But uh, over the decades, and and as we came to this century, uh, there were more and more um, women in in senior roles in senior anchor roles, of course. Um, on the CBC, I, I anchored the National in uh, uh, 1976 uh, for a couple of years. Um, but uh, six years later, Barbara Frum and Mary Lou Finley were the were the senior hosts on CBC's The Journal. And I think that uh, that was an era when uh, women were increasingly recognized as fully capable, con- competent, and uh, and solid journalists. And that has only grown, that particular uh, approach. Women in major media positions has only grown, and uh, women are excellent, excellent broadcasters. I mean, it's not a gender issue. It's what you, if you love to do it and and you're a journalist, you're a journalist. But here we are, again, um, some years later, and the issue is Lisa Laflamme, leaving CTV and how that occurred. First of all, are you surprised to see Lisa Laflamme's Twitter account of her departure from the network? Well, I, I was as shocked and surprised as, as many, if not most Canadians, were at the, at the clumsy and, and crude and cruel manner in which uh, uh, Val Media uh, removed her from the anchor chair. I thought that her, um, her video was... Uh, was uh, magnificent it was it was straight honest low-key um and to the point um but after thinking about it for a while you know her removal is certainly the highest profile but bell media has been uh downsizing uh their newsrooms their staff in newsrooms across their 35 uh tv stations and more than 100 iheart radio stations for the past year and many of those dismissals have been as abrupt and uh, uh, cruel in the sense that uh, longtime employees, through no fault of their own, were, were uh, uh, arbitrarily removed uh, and excused as a, as a business decision. And there's no question that business is a, is a legitimate reason. But I think in, in the case of... Um, of Lisa, this is, and from the anecdotal 
um, testimony of a number of people who work closely with her, unnamed because for a variety of reasons, but uh, ageism and sexism and uh, and executive uh, arrogance seems to be uh, uh, at the heart of this. It, it's, you know, it's, it, there's an irony here that I'm sure, uh, or, or I suspect, that the Bell Media executives who, who dropped the axe uh, aren't aware of, and that is that uh, uh, only a few meters from the CTV anchor desk was the studio used uh, for Howard Beale in the dark, dark and cynical uh, newsroom or news uh, media uh, movie in the mid-1970s. Yeah. Um, so, so let me just go a little bit further on this on this uh, on this thought process here. There is a public perception now that all media organizations regard men more highly than women. That's the perception. I've certainly seen it in emails. I've seen it on on social media. It's not fair uh, to national networks and local or regional media outlets. I don't think it is not. Certainly not to all of them. But do you believe that? If we can do this generically, do you believe that women are viewed with lesser regard than are men, particularly when a woman reaches her late 50s or perhaps early 60s vis-a-vis a man who reaches those particular milestones? Yes. And we also know that uh, when women embark on the adventure of motherhood, uh, that uh, very often a, a woman journalist returns to her to her station or to her program and finds that uh, it's either not there or uh, it's it, it has been diminished in one way or another. You know, we work with magnificently skilled women in our industry. Yes. And I learn from them constantly. I pay attention to what is said. I like listening to good journalists. Gender really, unless we have a discussion like this, gender never comes into play for me. Neither does the age of the person. If it's excellent journalism, it's excellent journalism. But I found it interesting, Peter, I read earlier today that men are perhaps, in some cases in this country, more disturbed about what happened to Ms. Laflamme than are women. Not saying that women aren't, but men have particularly taken it to heart. Well, I think... <clears throat> I think that men uh, are very sensitive to to uh, accusations of of sexism, gender bias over the years, and in newsroom uh, newsrooms, I know that uh, men are uh, many men, many male journalists are are deeply committed to respect and equality. Um, you know, anecdotally, I, I, I can tell you a story from my years at NBC when I worked on a program called 1986, uh, hosted by Roger Mudd and Connie Chung. And Roger was an old-time journalist who simply couldn't accept that Connie, who had come up through uh, local television newsrooms in California and was a superb journalist, he couldn't accept her as an equal on that program. And when we did the, when we taped the opening of that show, uh, the, the, the plan was for Roger to sit in one chair, uh, Connie in another, much like 60 minutes, uh, or in a manner similar to 60 minutes. And they would each give a, a headline or two of the stories that 
uh, we journalists were were presenting in the program uh, on that particular night. Uh, but in the end, Roger was so difficult uh, in his uh, inability to accept Connie as a as a journalist that they had to to, to tape their their two opening bits separately and then edit them together with with special effects. So, you know, it's been with us a long time. Roger was a great yeah. journalist in his own way, but he simply couldn't accept uh, a female co-host as an equal who was uh, who was younger certainly, but just as uh, as capable and uh, and professional a, a journalist. You know, uh, Peter, can you stay with us a little bit longer? I have a few more questions for you. Can you can you do that? Sure. Okay. Um, I, and I should have said this out of the gate. I've been an admirer of Lisa Laflamme for many years. Always thought of her and think of her as an excellent journalist and a great presenter of news. And it really speaks to, and I think that the, these, what is happening in this country now, the response to the story, the response to the reaction to what's happened to Ms. Laflamme, speaks to the mood in Canada. People have had it. People are fed up with unfair treatment. And if it's based on gender, based on age, then there's really, I think, double fatigue with this. People have had enough. And everybody, every organization should learn from this. Peter, what, uh, <laughs> what, do you make, what do you make of what Dave had to say? Because I've heard this before, that it's all about journalists and it's just journalism, and that's why we're talking about it. Well, no, it isn't. It, it isn't at all. It, it, this was big news. It is a real story. It's a, it's a uh, tragic story in terms of, of Lisa's uh, personal career. Uh, she has been dealt a very unfair, an unfair hand, and the uh, manner of of her uh, removal, as I said earlier, is clumsy in the first case, yeah. but also crude and and cruel. And the uh, uh, tape of the meeting between uh, the Bell executives and the staff of the of the national newscast uh, sort of reveals the clumsiness of it all. And now they're going to have meetings to follow up on that particular meeting, so that tells you where where the uh, the thinking is, or at least what their yeah. concern is. But you know what, Peter? We live in a youth-worshipping culture. Many other cultures worldwide respect elders, support them, learn from them. But in our society, being youthful is somehow perceived as a victory. If you're young, it just means you're aging folks that's the truth of it and you're going to become old uh, you're not intelligence deficient if you're older you're just older but we sell this perception that uh, for the young today they'll be young forever that's just not the case but it is the perception that we sell and and so now we come up with the ageism issue and the gender aspect of it which one disturbs you more peter if one disturbs well, you more than the other well, the gender discrimination is is huge. Uh, the ageism is a little bit harder to um, to to put a finger on, but I think in this case, because there seems to have been an issue over the uh, color of her hair, that in fact that was a that was a big reason for the Bell ex executive to. Uh, begin looking at her at her removal from the anchor desk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can 
I can remember back in the early 1970s when uh, the weekend dancer uh, anchors of the national, George Finstad and George McLean at the CBC, were away, ironically, at a golf tournament. And the head of news uh, looked around and asked a woman, a very competent journalist and, and uh, broadcaster, Jan Tennant, to uh, present the national that weekend. It was big news. Uh, she subsequently went on to anchor at Global TV uh, in, in the, in the uh, 70s and into the 80s um, uh, and chose on her own to step down. Uh, but I suspect if she had still uh, been in that anchor seat uh, as she aged, that may well have uh, uh, become a, an issue with whoever the executives were of that day. You know, we've come a long way, and then there are moments like this which remind us that even though we've come a long way, we do fall back, or some people fall back, to the stereotypes that are not acceptable, and they must not be acceptable. And I find it very encouraging that people across this country have said, absolutely not. There are some who think it's a journalism story. We heard that. It's not. It's about dignity. It's about rights. It's about human rights. It's about absolutely. treating people equally and, and rewarding them for, for performance and not saying, don't know why she let her hair grow go gray. Peter, thank well, you so much. If I could just add one point, Roy, yeah. it could also perhaps be about commercial broadcasting. If you look to the United States and PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodruff, I'm not sure of her age, but she's well into her 70s, uh, and she on public television is still one of the strongest anchors right. in broadcasting today. So I think that sometimes the commercial uh, considerations and corporate considerations in, in private broadcasting uh, may be behind some of this okay. unacceptable. We, we just have the one case. Peter, I appreciate it. Thanks you so much for joining us. So the story that uh, Canadians are talking about, coast to coast, the Lisa Laflamme story, the uh, CTV story, what happened to Ms. Laflamme, and... Uh, we're going to uh, continue here. I just, I think we just lost one of our guests. Catherine just disappeared. Uh, can we call her back, please, guys? Um, so we do have uh, my good friend, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and a seatmate to Justin Trudeau. How are you, Michelle? Roy, how are you? Great. Good to have you with us. I know this story about Lisa Laflamme has got you uh, very energized. That's to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. We had an off-air conversation with us as well. Linda Levadale, the former money editor of the Toronto Sun. She's the vice president of Cambria, Canada. And uh, we're still waiting for Catherine Swift to lock up with us, the uh, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. How are you, Linda? I'm great, Roy. Um but this is this story is very disturbing, I will okay, say. So I want to begin with you because you told me something off the air that happened to you. It's not identical to what happened to Lisa Laflamme, but there is a connection. So share with us, please, what happened on your 55th birthday. Okay. First of all, I just want to say I enjoyed listening to Peter Canton. Thank you, Peter. I was a financial anchor on global television for a time. But yes, yes. 
I used to say in my speeches that Freedom 55 was a boot out the corporate door and you're going to be fending for yourself. What a shock for me when Sun Media laid me off, and among others, I'm, I wasn't alone, on my 55th birthday, December 16th, 2008. And, you know, if Lisa's listening, I'm going to tell you, it's an emotional roller coaster ride because I listened to the gentleman and said, well, sports guy, you know, you, you, it's time to hang up the uh, spurs. Well, excuse me, but you're a journalist, you're seasoned, you have experience. And there was, I, I agree with you, Roy, I, I loved Lisa's delivery of the news. So ageism and sexism, perhaps that wasn't it for me, but I got to tell you, in the media, there are too many of these, I want to call them bonehead executives. And in my world, they're pimples I want to squeeze. They have no heart, no heart. Did you at the time that they let you go on your 55th yeah. birthday, yeah. was there a little part in your brain that said, I wonder if my age has something to do with this? Or was there part of you that said, I think my age probably has something to do with this? <laughs> Well, because there were others who were being laid off, but absolutely, I understand. Roy. Yeah, but absolutely. Um, I truly because my next question, my Linda, my next question is: Did you encounter as you moved through the media world, and you were very successful at it and very good at it? Yeah. Uh, did you encounter situations where you were treated differently than a man would have been in a similar situation or the position that you were in? Well, let me just put it this way: Money was one. I believe. Yeah. Um, and yes, I mean, women have fought the big fight to be independent and get into it. And so I was lucky when I started my media career that, as Peter said, women were more and more and more accepted. I think there's a bigger issue here, Roy. I think discrimination is happening all the way around. I think white males get discriminated against. White, blonde, female women get discriminated against. And I think you just made a statement Canadian, with everything going on in the world, we're getting fed up with it. And you know what? Yeah, it Respect matters to people. It really, it really fundamentally matters to people. It, 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 it affects how we think. There's, you know, you, you feel like you know the person. If there's a connection with the person who's at the center of the story, you feel like you know them to a certain extent, and there's a, you want to defend them to a certain extent as well, and you don't want to ever think that, Similar situation could happen to you or, or family members or friends of yours. Michelle oh. Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, sat with the Prime Minister, was his his uh, his seatmate when they were in opposition. Michelle, when when you think of the situation involving Lisa Laflamme and all the conversation and all the talk and all the stories that have circulated across this country over the last several days, what are you coming away with? Well, in the absence of the fact that the ratings for CTV News were tanking, um, I have to believe that, number one, it had to do with her letting her hair go gray during the pandemic, which, by the way, was quite attractive, and her decision to maintain that. And secondly, I think it was a monetary issue that, by virtue of all the years she spent at CTV, she worked her way up in the ranks, uh, both uh, position-wise and monetarily. And those two factors, but I really do think, uh, based on what we heard about the reason that viewers are going in a different direction, well, frankly, the only viewers that remain uh, for the nightly news tend to be P 
people of my age. Well, everyone else, everyone else, yeah, be relying well, on TikTok let's, and Twitter and yeah. Let's talk about though this the person that we think we know a little bit, okay, more than a little bit, okay. And there was the comment made by the one of the senior executives that had to do with Lisa letting her hair grow gray. <laughs> That's the comment that more than any other disturbed me. Exactly. Absolutely disturbed me because it speaks to the preference, and I said this earlier when I was speaking with Peter Kent, we live in a youth-worshipping culture. It, Lisa LaFlamme, letting her hair grow go gray, did not in any way impede or affect her performance as a journalist. Not at all. But it mattered to the person who made the remark. Catherine Swift is with us now. Some can, some difficulty connecting with Catherine. So, Catherine, what's your take on where we are? You were extremely successful. You became the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, you dealt with prime ministers and premiers and business leaders. As you saw this story develop, what were you thinking? Uh. <laughs> Sadly, I was thinking, same old, same old. And by the way, all my technology decided to collapse on me today, and I think it's because my hair's going gray. I'm taking it. <laughs> I really am. Uh, anyway, <laughs> now, there's a lot of things operational here. Like you say, Roy, I mean, there was a time, and, and I mean, I still do, you know, sort of have somewhat of a profile because of my history and so on and because of the work I'm doing now. But, but there was a time when my profile was very high in Canada, I'm not trying to brag, but it was a reality. And I was on the media a ton and, and, uh, and blowing microphones out in your studio and, you know, yes, you some stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, but what, what I found interesting then and still, and this, uh, this is totally related in my view to the Lisa Laflamme situation is, you know, whenever you're in the public eye, you will, you will have a barrage of criticism. It's just given. And these days, because of technology, social media, the fact that people can be anonymous on social media is huge. I think they should do away with that, frankly. Admit who you are or you're not, you're not going to be there. Women always got a way rougher ride, and a lot of it was sexual. I kept a lot of letters that were sent to me just because I thought when I'm really in my dotage in my rocking chair, I'll probably laugh my head off. But vicious, vicious sex, sex-related stuff. That, that it was really, and a man, I'm sure a man virtually never gets that kind of thing. And, and in Lisa's case, I mean, it was, it was physical, her hair, her appearance, right? Because we women, all that really matters is our appearance. So to me, it was just, hey, maybe we haven't come all that far, baby. Yeah, you wonder how many other cases there are, how many other situations that are ongoing at the present time, how many cases have happened. People have just kept quiet about it because they didn't feel they had any power. Women didn't feel they had the power to respond or the power to challenge. In this case, I thought the way Lisa Laflamme handled it was absolutely fantastic. I watched that uh, that that Twitter posting very early in. And I thought, one of two things is going to happen here. Number one, people are going to pay attention for a couple of hours and it'll be gone. But I had a different, the, the, the louder voice in the back of my head was saying, this story is going to go national. And here we are because there are component parts of this that everyone can identify with. Everyone can identify with. But you know, Male you or know female, what? but specifically, it's an issue affecting women. Exactly. Look at, look at the John Derringer situation on Q107. Multiple women 
complained about their treatment under him for years. He got away with it. Some people were bought off and had non-disclosures and so on and so forth. So he finally, he finally, you know, was let go. Probably got a big fat check, too. Um, but what about the managers that tolerated? They, they knew this was going on and tolerated. Same with Bell now. Same with Bell Media now. And I'm not so they're going to be having they're going to be having follow up meetings now, as well, we understand it. How does this story impact young women entering the professional world? What do you say, Michelle? Well, it sends a very dangerous signal to women, and there's already an issue. Like we look at young girls that end up with. You know, they have bulimia, they have anorexia. It's all about appearance and what they wear and how their hair is. And, you know, it's, it, I think it's very scary for some of them and that they strive so hard, uh, about appearance, not so much about talent and, uh, education, but it's all about appearance. At the end of the day, that's the message it sends to them. Linda, what do you think? Do you think do you think young women are, will pay attention to this particular development? Is it something that's going to um, get the attention of uh, of a young woman in her twenties? I'm thinking of your daughter. Well, and I hope it does, uh, Roy. I hope they will pay attention. And you know, I think Catherine's had same old, same old. Well, the thing is, you can you know, some young, beautiful, whatever gets the job, replaces. But if this is what is in the industry, that it's okay just to kick you at the door because you got gray hair, then you can't take away aging. And I say respect for your elders so young kids understand and fight for what is right. And those yeah, executives. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I'm going to go back to what the caller said, or at least refer to our first caller, Dave, in Winnipeg. Catherine, are you entitled to a job, or does an employer privately have? certain amount of leeway to express an opinion on appearance. Well, where do we they, where do we go with this? They have they have every right, but they don't have right to discriminate on the basis of gender. And people have used Absolutely the example. Not. People have used the example of Lloyd Robertson, who was on the air till he was seventy seven. And I love Lloyd Robertson, so don't get I'm not criticizing him. But the thing that the point is here it was differential treatment of a woman. That mm-hmm. is the point. And it was done horribly, by the way, horribly. And one thing I think we have to realize, Roy, and you and I have spoken about this whole thing before, the corporatization of our media in Canada. We used to have a ton of independent players. They had unique kind of personalities, radio stations, TV, and so on. Now it's a handful of huge conglomerates. And this is how yep. corporations let people go. It's a very bloodless uh, you know, exercise, and there's some, and this this guy that let Lisa go. It, I, I think when you talk about the young women issue, if I was young again, uh, would that were the case, I would I would be looking at what happened to the people that made this decision. Are there any repercussions, or is this just okie dokie, and it will yeah. just blow over right. in a few days? All right, look, I'm not turf defending here, but I do want to say not all media organizations should be impacted. If you look at Global Television News and Chorus Radio, we have a significant number of women hosts, anchors and bureau chiefs and reporters who are excellent in what they do and, from what I know, are treated very fairly. But, and it's not just about media organizations. This is happening because my sense is the reason I'm talking about this is twofold. One, it's Lisa Laflamme's story. It has to do with the information that we have. But it's also 
another aspect of it is how society-wide is it? We thought we had come a long way. Maybe we have. Maybe this is an isolated incident. Maybe it's the tip of the iceberg. This is what I'm curious about. I don't think well, it's isolated at all. No. I, no. I think we're seeing, like I say, the Derringer thing just came up recently, too. Yeah. And that had been going on for, for quite a period of time from every indication. So I, I don't think it's uh, it's isolated. I think I think things are better, for sure, than they used to be. But unless the management people involved here are held to account, then we're not we're not going to see the kind of change. Agreed. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Catherine. Corporate greed and corporate control. It's and now we've a lot of community. Yeah, but Linda, let me let me just ask you: Is it really about corporate control and corporate greed, or is it individuals within a corporation who are behaving in a manner that is not to be tolerated? Because because if you because you look you have standards of behavior that are expected and I'm not going to be the corporate defender here but there are standards of of behavior that are expected demanded if you're part of a larger organization and if you step outside those standards of behavior you're going to be held to account I've seen it happen. Well, let's see oh, yeah. what, what happens to these guys at Bell Media. Then let's see what happens and well, exactly. talk about it later on. So, what yeah. should what? Okay, what do you think? What do you believe? And we have one minute here. What do you believe is going to come out of this situation? Is it going to blow over and it'll be a story for a week, and then we'll get on to something else, as we so often do? So, you know, stories have a shelf life of twenty-four or forty-eight, seventy-two hours. After that, people start to get bored. Is, is, is this going to be impactful in the longer term? Michelle, what do you think? Oh, I think it will, because it's already exceeded the 72 hours, and people are getting angrier as each day passes, and it's part of the Me Too movement. Now it's going to be those of us with gray hair that either choose to color or not color are going to be irate for a long time. Yep, yep. I'm very interested to hear what Howard Levin has to say to us that's, later on about what, what is actually in the employment law. In mm-hmm. the, it's usually provincial, but as we said earlier, there are federal uh, laws as well, and certain industries fall under federal jurisdiction like broadcasting journalism. But uh, it'll be very interesting to find out what exactly exists in legislation, because that'll tell us in many ways how far we've come as well. It'll tell us how, how seriously the legislators take this issue. No, agree. So, you can obey the letter of the law on this kind of stuff, but still behind the scenes be practicing stuff that is not in keeping with the spirit yeah, of the law. Yeah, and yeah. absolutely. Okay. Okay. So we'll try to bury stop, this. Stop. That's stop. what they'll try to do. Um, stop. Stop. I'm out of time. <laughs> All right. I'm going to dye my hair yeah. now. You know. <laughs> Me too. Oh, stop I'm still it. I'm mine. But that has nothing to do with this. <laughs> You're the best. You're the best. All three of you. Rod Giltaka is the CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Rod, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, remind us, who exactly does your organization represent? We are, uh, I guess, what we would call an end-user group. So our organization is uh, is funded and we rep- buy and we represent individual uh, gun owners in Canada. That's how we, uh, that's how we function and that's who we uh, advocate for. All right, so so the CCFR responds to the ban on importing handguns to Canada, which the minority government of Justin Trudeau, with the support of the NDP, mandated without a parliamentary vote. Interesting that the debate will continue after the summer break, but it's already been done by then. What's your response to the government's decision? 
Well, I mean, anyone that takes a close look, and that's obviously very few people really understand the ins and outs of this topic. It's it's very uh, cursory for most people. They just hear what goes on uh, in the media and from the government, and, and that's all they, uh, they really know about. But if you take a really close look, you realize that this is entirely political. Canadians have legally possessed handguns for 100 years in this country. There's nothing new. Uh, they know where the violence is coming from. It's it's gangs primarily, almost in, almost exclusively gang problems when it when it involves handguns, and you know um, firearm owners are are not very likely to vote liberal these days, uh, although many of us did before. Um, so for the liberals, it's a win win. They're they they make uh, licensed gun owners to be the bad guys, and those are people who would be unlikely to vote for them anyway. So it, it works for them. Do you have any sense, any hope, any um, any idea that this particular initiative by the Liberals may be overturned when they have the debates beginning in, in Parliament? I don't, but what's your thinking? Well, it, it won't be overturned because the NDP are basically exactly. the Liberals. Um, so, and in Canada, I, love, I think most people don't realize how things work in Canada. In our system, the government can pretty much do virtually whatever it wants to you, and if you don't like that, you can... Fight them in court if you can, you know, muster up a million dollars. Um, and the only way to stop these things is to have a different government to reverse these things or to bring common sense back. And so it's a, it's a, it's a yeah, tough thing. We're, we're very much off. aware. We're very much aware of how government <laughs> yeah. operates. Trust me, we we talked about it hundreds, thousands of times with the six prime ministers. The current one, not so much, but certainly with the previous six prime ministers. When you own a firearm in this country, so you've passed on, we'll, we'll get into what's required shortly with another guest, but when you own a firearm, when you're licensed to own a firearm, a handgun, let's be specific, a handgun, you have the RPAL, how restricted is your movement with that handgun in this country? Well, it's incredibly uh, restrictive and uh, and onerous to to make that commitment to own a handgun. Um, obviously, you have to have a license. You get a criminal background check every day um, through CPIC electronically. Um, you know the uh, the government has uh, you, your your spouse has to sign off on you to uh, to be able to have a firearms license. You can only shoot a handgun at an approved shooting range nowhere else in the country. You can only drive to and from the shooting range uh, directly in the most reasonably uh, direct route. If you if you contravene any of these rules, and handguns are registered too, so the government knows where they are, who has them, where they're being stored, and contravention of any of these things, storage, transportation, any of those things, is a criminal offense. I'm not talking about a fine. It's not a regulatory offense. It's a criminal offense. So very, very tightly controlled um, property. And that's why it makes no sense at all for the government to be attacking licensed gun owners. So you have the public safety minister, Marco Mendocino, saying in an interview, here's the quote, we've seen handgun violence go through the roof, end quote. And by extension, I suspect, Mr. Mendocino is saying, now that we're going to ban the legal importation of handguns, and this is to legal and licensed firearms dealers, we're going to ban this, or we have banned it, things will improve. Um, what are the chances that's going to happen? Because the illegal importation of handguns is not going to slow down. If anything, it may accelerate. Well, of course, as long as there's violence in Canada, as long as there's violence, as long as there's crime, as long as there's, uh, you know, socioeconomic challenges and in, in racialized communities and all the, all the, all the factors that make up violence, then this will just continue. And, 
you know, Mendocino, he's, it, <laughs> I don't want to say that he's absurd, but the, the things that he says are absurd and unbecoming of a, of a public safety minister because there is no co- correlation between licensed gun owners and firearm-related violence. He is quoted as saying, and I looked at uh, Blacklock's reporter's story, and uh, we talk to Tom Korski quite often on this program from Black Locks. Uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino yesterday claimed federal agents had, quote, a record year for illegal firearm seizures, end quote, in 2021. Records show 316 smuggled handguns were confiscated by the Canada Border Services Agency. That's a record year. I don't want to know what a non-record year looks like because that doesn't seem like a very impressive number to me. Well, you know, if I, I deal a lot with law enforcement, and uh, they, if you talk to anyone in law enforcement, let's say in the, that uh, patrols um, some areas in Toronto or Vancouver or Winnipeg, they will tell you that it only takes a very small number of people to do an incredible amount of damage. So even if you had, you know, 50 to 100 illegal handguns in these areas of Toronto, that could easily result in the into the levels of violence that we've been seeing. So the police know who who, who the problem is. They know all the people and the yeah, cliques and the, and the gangs. Um, but again, that doesn't help. Solving that problem does not help the liberals politically. And that's what they're, that's what they're focused on. And that's yeah. why I'm having my handguns taken away from me, right? So let's talk about what's involved as far as getting a license is concerned to own a firearm. What's involved? There are two classifications. There's the PAL and the RPAL. And joining us to talk about that is Mr. Doug Ottinger. He's a licensed firearms instructor in St. Catharines, Ontario. Doug, thanks very much for joining us. Tell us uh, what you do and what's the name of your, your organization. Uh, thanks for having me, Roy. Um, the, the organization is Smart Shot Firearms Training, and we teach the courses that are required to get a PAL with both non-restricted and restricted privileges. Okay. Before I ask you about what's involved in getting the PAL and the RPAL, can you just walk us through what the sig- most significant aspects of the application are in order to get to see you in the first place? Uh, well, you actually can't file an application to uh, get a PAL until you take the Canadian Firearm Safety Course uh, and or the Canadian Restricted, sorry, not and or, just and the Canadian Restricted Firearm Safety Course, depending on the, the privileges that you want to have on your license. In order to go through the application process, you have to take the appropriate courses. You have to get references who have known you to sign off that you're safe. Uh, and you have to declare your medical and criminal history. And you also have to have your current and former spouses within the last two years sign off on that application as well. Okay. So uh, would you explain for us, please, Doug, the difference between a PAL and an RPAL? So the PAL is a possession and acquisition license that allows you to um, to possess, have in your possession, and also to purchase more firearms. And there are two classes that you, or two sets of privileges, rather, that you can get on your PAL uh, in the current environment. One is non-restricted, which is predominantly rifles and shotguns, and the other is restricted, which is predominantly handguns. Now, there are some rifles and shotguns that are restricted, but in g- most will fall into the non-restricted category. Okay. Do students typically need to prepare, uh, read available materials? You mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the book uh, earlier, but do, do students typically need to prepare 
um, and read available materials before taking either the PAL and or the RPAL? So it's not strictly required. The courses are designed for people who don't have any firearms experience. We start from the ground and work our way up. Uh, with that having been said, like like any subject matter, if you've studied it a little bit before coming in, you'll probably be a little bit less nervous, and some of the information will click probably for you a little bit easier. So if I walk into your classroom and I want to uh, take the course for, for a POW, What's involved? Uh, so the Canadian Firearms Safety Course, which is the course you need to apply for a PAL with non-restricted privileges and has a legal minimum of eight hours of instruction time. I, I'm usually closer to nine hours when I teach it. And during the course of the course, if I can put it that way, you're going to learn the history of firearms, uh, everything from uh, older muzzle loader type firearms all the way up to the five modern action types. You're going to learn how they work. You're going to learn how to handle them safely in different situations, whether you're uh, out hunting or at the range. You're going to learn how to safely load them and know what type of ammunition to load into the firearm. You're going to learn how to store them safely and legally, and you're going to learn how to transport them safely and legally. All right. Uh, so that's in Canada. If I were in Texas, I could just walk into a gun store and buy one. Uh, different rules, different country, different situation. What about the RPAL? What is the course for the restricted uh, uh, firearm consist of? How long is the course? And uh, does the PAL itself have to be successfully completed prior to signing up for an RPAL? Yeah, so to complete the Canadian Restricted Firearms Safety Course and apply for a license, you do need to have completed the Canadian Firearms Safety Course first, and they build on each other. So you wouldn't be able to apply for the restricted license without having completed both of the courses. They build on each other. If you take the Canadian Restricted Firearms Safety Course within 30 days of the Canadian Firearms Safety Course, then it's... Uh, legally required to be four hours of instruction time, again, not counting breaks and lunches and exams. Uh, that one usually takes me closer to about four and a half, four hours and 45 minutes. And if it's beyond 30 days, then we we do a little bit more review, uh, and the, the course is a minimum of six hours. Uh, often takes me about six and a half. All right. So at the conclusion, then, of each of these courses, the PAL and the RPAL, there's a test that has to be passed. What do the tests consist of, Doug, and what's a passing grade? What is absolutely required in order to, to pass? So there's actually two tests, Roy, at the, end of, at the end of each course. There is a written test that is true, false, multiple choice, uh, and it's, uh, it's scored out of 50, and a minimum passing grade is 80%, so that's going to be 40 out of 50. Uh, and then after that, there's a practical test, uh, which you also need to get 40 out of 50 on or a score of 80%. And on the practical uh, test, I, I can't give away too much, but you're, you're sort of the, the things that we talked about earlier around how to handle safely, uh, how to determine ammunition, that sort of thing, um, anything that we've taught you about in class and that you've physically done, uh, we may, might test you on. So this one's important. Well, they're all important, but this one uh, I think particularly addresses uh, a little bit what our uh, what our emailer raised. Can you speak to please how seriously both of these courses are approached? And uh, yeah, let's do that. How seriously are the, pro the, the the courses approached, and how seriously do you approach the testing? 
You know, they're approached very seriously. Um, and I, I sort of say this at the beginning of each and every class. We have, uh, you know, I teach the courses over a weekend. And so I've got a weekend to teach you how to safely handle a firearm. And, you know, as, as you know, accidents happen, but accidents happen far less frequently when people follow the rules of the road. So I've got a weekend to teach you the rules of the road. And when the course is done, you're going to look to me to sign a piece of paper that says you're safe. And frankly, if you're not safe, I won't sign it. There's nothing that would get me to sign it because I would have to live with the consequences of that for the rest of my life. And that's just not something I'm prepared to do. Um, you're going to be standing at some point, if you're successful, you're going to be standing next to somebody with a loaded firearm and you need to know how to handle that safely. Just like you drive a car down the highway at a hundred kilometers an hour. We all hope you can do that safely. Are there common misconceptions, Doug, about being licensed to own a firearm in Canada? Maybe you've encountered them in the classroom. Um, you know what? I, I don't know if I would use the word misconceptions, Roy. What I would say is I think people come into the class very surprised at how much they have to learn uh, and all of the steps they need to go through. Um, I think that that is something that is not commonly known. It's a commitment. Uh, it's a commitment to a fairly intense weekend. Uh, and it's a commitment to going through a fairly arduous uh, application process. And that tends to surprise people a fair bit. Yeah. I, I want to be honest with uh, with my, my listeners. And uh, I want them to know that I took your RPAL course with you because I wanted to see what was involved. I wanted to know how seriously it was going to be taken. And I can tell everyone that my experience with you is you're personable, but you're very serious. And uh, if you don't, if you don't deserve the 80, you're not going to get it. And uh, I want people to know that it's extremely seriously handled. Doug, thank you so much. Remind us again, please, what the name of your your, your uh, business is. It's Smart Shop Firearms Training. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 